Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Hey, brothers and sisters, this is John Dupuy again, and I want to tell you about the conversation, a three-part conversation we had with lucid dream expert, Andrew Holacek. The reason we started this thing is just like the title is Deep Transformation, and a large part of our life is spent in the realms of the unconscious, and there's a tremendous power, and I know that in my work with dreams, that great energy to change and to heal and to push us forward on our evolutionary journey. Andrew is the master, and this is certainly exciting. So please tune in and enjoy this with us. God bless. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy. And with us today is a man who has been a great inspiration to me. In fact, I just got out of a long meditation retreat, and I had I read very little in retreats, but I did take two of his books as inspiration and also guidance for my practice. He is a character who, in some ways, a double personality. By day, he is a doctor of dentistry and has a profession in dentistry and, and actually formed charitable organizations which provide dental service internationally. But by night, by night, he is a master of dream yoga, and he spends his nights traveling and teaching and, well, traveling and learning in realms that are just unknown to most of us. And he has written the wonderful book, which has just opened a whole new world to me, his book, Dream Yoga, in which he describes the practice of dream yoga, which turns out to be a practice common to multiple spiritual traditions, but perhaps most fully articulated and mastered in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of which of which he is a, a longtime student. And so in, he has provided a map for the practices of dream yoga, and even beyond dream yoga, practices in deep sleep. This is remarkable territory. So he's also done other work in death and dying, in provided books on working with spiritual challenges. So he's covered a lot of areas, but there's a lot to dig into just in the dream yoga. So let's start with that. Andrew, welcome. Roger and John, thank you so much. It's really a delight and an honor to spend some time with you. Appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure for us, and it's a, a pleasure for me because I can honestly say that you know, once we get to adulthood, our worldviews, our kind of understanding of reality usually doesn't change much. But you have significantly changed my understanding of reality and human possibilities. And that began with reading your book on, on dream yoga. And so how did you discover this? And 
Give us an overview. Uh, well, first of all, I'm so flattered, Roger, that someone of your caliber would be so touched by my own work. It really means a lot to me personally. Yeah, it, it's been an interesting ride. My interest, passion for what I playfully call the nocturnal meditations, which by the way, there, there are actually five of those. And maybe I could say a little bit what those five actually are, because dream yoga is just one of those five. Really, it, it, be, it began almost as far back as my memory goes with a deep interest in my dream life. I always just had a very rich dream world. But then really in my early 20s, I had some some truly profound experiences. One in particular, which I believe I share in the book, Dream Yoga, was a game changer for me, a really before and after experience where I had been working as a hospital in a surgical unit, thinking about going to med school and was doing a fair amount of reading in, in a relatively new literature at that time, the Seth material, the kind of developing new age sort of thing. And I started having a fair amount of these kind of precognitive dreams, dreams of premonition and the like. And and then during one really extraordinary magical period, Roger lasted about two weeks. My mind just kind of broke open in, into this really marvelous state, which at that point, I have to say, I thought it was an altered state, but I've come to now realize that actually it was a dip into the natural state. And in fact, this is the altered state. But in short, what characterized this, this two-week period were, were two things. One was my nighttime dream life just really took off. I had pretty much constant lucidity. And lucid dreams are, for your listeners, of course, that magical moment when you're in a dream and something triggers the recognition that, oh my gosh, this is a dream. So you actually attain lucidity, awareness, consciousness, and you still are in the dream. And so I started having lucid dreams pretty much constantly. And the other thing that was really compelling to me that ended up seeding the second book in this dream trilogy, the Dreams of Light book, was my daytime experience became correlatively more illusory, more dreamlike. And so this is a very interesting thing for me, Roger, because here's on one level, my dreams were becoming more real. If, if I say it carefully, I can say my dreams were becoming more reified, more solid, more real. And then conversely, my daytime experience was becoming less real. And this was a really interesting experience for, in fact, these two weeks. But then as I share it in the book, it became quite disconcerting because my footing, my grounding in reality was now being challenged. I really got to the point where I had a hard time distinguishing whether I was awake or dreaming. And that, because I didn't have the proper infrastructure for it, became quite unsettling. And it reminded me of what famous psychiatrist R.D. Langwin said, the mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns. And I was starting to drown. So I had to shut it down because I really thought instead of, hey, maybe this is a glimpse of the awakened state, enlightenment, I said, hey, wait, maybe this is a glimpse of insanity. <laughs> so, so I had to shut it down in order to just regain my bearings, re relocate my footing in reality. And that began my search into a host of traditions. And I can pause for a second that eventually led me to, uh, to Buddhism. And then why Buddhism of, of so many of the traditions I've studied really spoke to me based on that experience. Yeah, so you were having these experiences before almost anything was known about them in the West. Yeah, yeah, that and that's this is really important because I've I've since come to understand and appreciate the classic Indic, both in Buddhism and Hinduism, this kind of pedagogical approach of understanding experience and realization. And I had the experience before I had the proper understanding, and so therefore I had to retrofit the understanding. It took me about eight, nine years till I finally landed in the tradition, in this case, Buddhism, that spoke to me that therefore really helped me understand like, 
what was that? What was it that I really experienced? I had no idea. And, and so that's one reason I, I guess I could say I'm a card-carrying Buddhist, even though I consider myself really, as you know, Roger, more an integral person. I'm more a curiousist than a Buddhist. <laughs> that's a great, great, that's yeah. a great word. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be quoting you. <laughs> I'm just curious about the nature of mind and reality. But, but I have to say the, the Buddhist approach really spoke to me right at the outset, because as you know, etymologically, the word Buddha comes from a Sanskrit root that literally means the awakened one. And the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, that's compelling, like awake in relationship to what? And so the more I dove into this incredibly noble tradition, the more it resonated with me. And then eventually it took me into three-year retreat, which is where the next colossal dive into this topic occurred. Because during this monumental training period, I had this extraordinary ability to work throughout the entire day with practices of what was called illusory form, working to see the world in a de-reified illusory way, and then working with not only dream yoga, but sleep yoga at night. And basically what was so brilliant about that for me was I finally was actually to reinstate the experiences in the context of this retreat that I had experienced spontaneously decades earlier. And that to me was like, whoa, this is, this is definitely my baby. And so since then, the nocturnal practices have become a real passion for me because they, they really represent a, a, an incredible untapped natural resource. I mean, think about the numbers here, Roger. We, we spend about 25% of our sleeping time in REM sleep. That's mostly when we dream, not exclusively. That amounts to about a month a year in an average lifetime. That's about six years we spend in the dream state. I mean, you can get a PhD in less than six years. And so I, I often playfully think of, of these practices as a form, a unique, a unique form of night school, where in fact, just to give it some scientific traction, uh, Matthew Walker, who you probably know from Berkeley, neuroscientist, wrote a marvelous book called Why We Sleep. And in this book, it's very interesting. He, he only relegates two or three pages to lucid dreaming. But at the very end, he says something very compelling. And again, he's, he's not a, a, a lucid dreamer, dream yoga practitioner that I'm aware of. He's a hard-hitting scientist. And he says there, quote, I, I memorized it because it's so compelling. He says, it's entirely possible that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution, end quote. And so I really do think that this represents a kind of pedagogy of the future, the capacity to really bring up to 25% of our lives into the arena of waking consciousness and, and therefore tap into these incredible vast natural resources that otherwise are just lost in the oblivion of, of, of non-lucid sleep and dream. Yeah, yeah. And as a way in here, could you give us an overview sure. of the different practices and experiences that are available from this? Yeah, oh, happy to do that. I get so excited about this, right? So, so yeah, in my languaging, there are five of these so-called nocturnal meditations. And the first one is classically, it's called hypnagogic sleep. It's that kind of dimension of mind. I, I love to think of it as like a, a plasma of mind, this kind of froth of perception where you're not awake, you're not asleep. I also like the term recently coined um, called liminal dreaming, where liminal really means threshold. And, and liminality in itself is a really interesting principle. Liminal beings, liminal places, liminal experiences are very compelling. In, in Buddhist language, these would be connected to what they call bardo or gap experiences. And so liminal dreaming is the first, it's when you hit the pillow and you're going in that drowsy, not quite awake, not quite asleep space. And it's an incredibly interesting 
arena that I used to skip over. I'm just going to get through this and kind of get to the goodies of lucid dreaming and dream yoga. But since then, I've really come to appreciate liminal dreaming for several reasons. One is it's really easy. I mean, this is something anybody can do. It's just bringing a heightened sensitivity and awareness slash lucidity. That's what lucidity is. It's a code word for awareness to this very interesting space where you can start to watch how kind of a witnessing witnessing perspective, you can watch how the mind kind of goes offline and, and start to realize that what we know is the self sense, the ego structure is really just the storyline. It's a narrative and you can watch that narrative come undone when you fall asleep. So I'll pause on that one. Then of course, the classic one, the real grounding is lucid dreaming. That's the second one. That's that magical space. Like I mentioned earlier, when you wake up to the fact that you're dreaming in my definition, I use it principally in contradistinction to dream yoga, which is the next one. Lucid dreaming is largely used for purposes of self-fulfillment psychological dimensions, you can you do an extraordinary array of activities in, in the lucid dream arena, which we can come back to and talk about. Also helpful to know some of these benefits because otherwise people go, geez, why bother? My life is already so full. My sleep is so precious. You know, we put this pretty big do not disturb sign when we go to sleep. And so sometimes it's helpful for people to understand, well, why, why should we in fact want to be so disturbed, so to speak? So lucid dreaming, so much to say about that. But then with some proficiency, lucid dreaming can mature to dream yoga. And this is really the game changer because this is where it transitions, not so much in the kind of trajectory of self-fulfillment, but now it's more self-transcendence. Now it's not so much about psychological vectors as is dream, uh, lucid dreaming. It's more about spiritual principles. And this is where the gray wisdom traditions, Buddhism and Taoism, the Jewish mystical traditions, Sufism, and the like, really, they have these kind of under the radar nocturnal meditations that are connected deeply to dream yoga. And in my listing, there are nine stages of the dream yoga path. I can talk about those in as much detail as you like. But just for the purposes to complete the overview, then with a little bit of stability, and this is where it becomes increasingly more sophisticated, refined, and dare we say esoteric, then you can develop into what's called sleep yoga. The Tibetan here is ursul or luminosity yoga. It's the same word that's used in Sanskrit, nidra. So this is worth throwing into the next When When people talk about yoga nidra, nidra means sleep. And it's very easy to confuse yoga nidra with classic sleep yoga, but it's not. Yoga nidra is more really in the bandwidth of liminal dreaming. But basically what happens in lucid sleep which, and now they're, by the way, they're studying this in laboratories. There are some very sophisticated researchers now, and I've been involved in study designs and that sort of thing, substantiating the validity because lucid dreaming has been scientifically proven for decades since the 70s. Lucid sleep has still to be scientifically substantiated because it's difficult to send a signal from the deep dreamless state space, that kind of thing. But um, Tom Metzinger, a friend of mine, says that when in fact it is substantiated, this will be a revolution in the mind sciences. Because it's, it completely turns everything upside down. I mean, what, what are you saying here? You mean you can be completely lucid, awake, in deep, dreamless sleep? That's, that's almost an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms in the Western arena. Well, the wisdom traditions say absolutely. And in fact, in the, one of the four principal schools of Tibetan Buddhism, what's called the Nyingma tradition, the old school, sleep yoga is actually the main practice. 
Because if you maintain lucidity in deep dreamless sleep, delta wave, slow wave sleep, that means you automatically have lucidity of the dream state. And then just to complete the picture, the very last one is bardo yoga. And this is a really, this is where my interest in death and dying comes into play. My book, Preparing to Die, deals with this. And this also is really interesting from the Tibetan arena, Roger, because they talk about in the Tibetan world, they talk about three types of dream. And really, in my language, dream is a code word for manifestation of mind. And that fundamentally means everything is a dream. That's what the Buddha discovered, the ultimate lucid dreamer. He discovered that everything is a dream. What that really means, that's a deeper dive. We, we, we could get into that. But the Tibetans talk about three different types of dreams. So one is the classic nighttime dream. They also refer to it very interestingly as the double delusion or the example dream. I mean, how interesting is that? That you use the double delusion, the nighttime dream, as a way to extrapolate insights using the laboratory of, of the mind in that arena back into the primary dream. So that's the second dream, this, what we call waking reality. This is a dream. But in terms of bardo yoga, there's one more type of dream that they refer to as the dream at the end of time. And that's death, the bardo states and beyond. And so the nocturnal meditations come to their full fruition in bardo yoga. And this is really, this is an incredibly compelling thing that allows us to therefore work with the mind as it manifests in these extraordinarily subtle dimensions when we sleep and dream as a, a concordant or similitude experience, according to these wisdom traditions, to what they allegedly say will happen when we die. And the Tibetans are really unequivocal here that dream yoga came about principally as a way to prepare for death. So there's so much more to say here, but one very last thing, and then I'll pause is that this in itself answers so many questions just in relation to what happens when we die. One of which is, where do you go when you die? Well, if you really look at the nature of mind and reality as being of the nature of dream, simply transition from one dream to the next. And so therefore, if we can maintain lucidity in the nocturnal nighttime dream, it has not only a bi-directional benefit, but a tri-directional benefit. And by this, what I mean is that what you do in the nocturnal mind, the dream state, it's just not left tucked in under the blankets, the comforter of the, of the nighttime mind. No, no, no. What you do is you work with your mind in this distilled fashion in the dream arena. And then those insights ping back into the waking state. So lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. That's the bidirectional component. And that's also really helpful to understand because again, we're like, why should I do this? Well, because learning how to become lucid in your dreams will help you to become lucid in your life. And what that means, we can talk about. But it's not just a twofer, it's a threefer. Because now, not only does it ping back into the waking state, but it also pings forward into the death state. That lucid dreaming leads to lucid dying. That you can then maintain a type of tacit awareness, tacit lucidity, as you go through the entire death journey. And according to the Tibetans, this is a game changer because what they argue, if you believe in this sort of thing, and look at your nighttime experience, if you don't wake up and take control of your nighttime dream, what does? Your habits, or in Eastern language, karma. Exactly the same phenomenology takes place, they allege, when you die. If you don't wake up, become lucid, and take control of your mind, your unconscious mind, because that's what's released when you die, what takes control? Just like in the, in the nighttime dream, your unconscious mind takes control. And therefore, when you attain lucidity 
in the dream at the end of time, that's a game changer because then you can maintain control, directionality, and, and guide that entire um, process with some intentionality. So that's a bit of, it's a long-winded answer to a terrific question, but there's just a lot there. So I hope it's okay to throw all those noodles against the wall. Well, it's absolutely wonderful. And you distilled so, distilled so much there. First off, you, you, get, you just gave us an overview of these remarkable practices and uh, a taste of their benefits. But you also pointed to the way in which these practices are, are at the very cutting edge of Western understanding and research. And you talked about the fact that lucid dreaming has now been investigated for some time by Western researchers. But we could also add that probably about the time you were beginning, most Western psychologists did not believe that lucid dreaming was possible, let alone lucid sleep. So this is a beautiful example, which we could provide others, but you're providing a beautiful example of the way that as these contemplative traditions have come into the West, and that has done many things, and one of them is it's revived interest in our own Western practices of Sufism and Jewish Kabbalah, Christian con contemplation, and we find those same practices in, in these traditions too, perhaps not as overt or central, but they're there. And they are also, so they've, they've had a, these Eastern practices have had a major impact on our Western contemplative traditions, and both traditions have had an impact on Western psychology and our understanding of human nature and possibilities. And you've pointed out that lucid dreaming is one way that the whole field of sleep research has changed and our understanding of what's possible in sleep has changed. But you're pointing to the fact there are more possibilities and potentials and developmental opportunities that are still off Western psychology's map. And this is really important because one of the things that I think all of us are trying to do is to expand our Western cultural and professional understanding of human nature and human possibilities and potentials and their implications for life and life and healing both ourselves and our collective. So this is extraordinarily important and has so many implications. Well, Roger, I, I high five for you, my friend, for bringing that to the table, because I, I, I think this is a really important point. And let me just say a couple of things here. It's very interesting that one of the differentiating factors, and obviously with globalization, this is these barriers are coming down. But really, you, what you said is really spot on, that in the Western way, we derive our definitions of mind and reality almost principally from the waking state. What I refer to as really the hubris of wake centricity. And in the service of that also, we can join with that are things like photocentricity, site centricity, all of which, by the way, is, is in, the, in the service of egocentricity. And so what's really interesting, the unique contribution of the East and that they derive their understanding of mind and reality, not just from one bandwidth, the waking state, but from all three. So it's much more comprehensive. It's much more integral. And so I, I use the following analogy. It's, it's as if most of us, again, are because we're so sight-centric, so almost addicted to light, especially artificial light. And I, I argue that this is actually one signature of the Kali Yuga of the Dark Age, that is, is our complete infatuation and addiction to artificial light. And so 
what the one of the ways I look at these nocturnal meditations, it's it's akin to like you're in a really brightly lit room. In the, it's dark outside, you're in a really brightly lit room, and you want to step outside to get some fresh air. And so when you first step outside, it's pitch black. You can't see a thing. This is the beginning nocturnal meditator. They turn the lens of the mind's eye back in. It's all dark in there. They can't see anything. Why? Well, because of the constriction, the contraction of the egoic level of development. Interestingly represented in the pupils of our eyes, they just constrict. You can't see anything because the light ironically blinds us. We're blinded by the light. Well, using this analogy, you're patient. That's one of the biggest ingredients for success with these nocturnal meditations is you just keep going. Guess what happens? Your mind relaxes, or in this case, let's use the physical eye. The eyes dilate, the aperture of your consciousness dilates, and guess what happens? You start to slowly see things that have always been there, but hidden in the darkness of ignorance. Darkness is a code word for ignorance. And so we simply were patient. We remain open. The aperture of our hearts and minds opens. And hey, guess what? We start to see things we've never seen before. And that's where, that's where the lucidity comes from. We continue that the eye acclimatizes, the mind's eye acclimatizes. You start to have lucid dreams. You start to have glimpses of lucid sleep. And the other thing that it does to put a, a further exclamation point on your really great comment here, Roger, is that it replaces the, the Western binary bivalent view of mind reality. That it's like a, a light switch in my room. I go over there. It's either yes, no, on, off, black, white, dead, or alive. That's in, in a kind of orienting generalization. That's the Western view of, of mind reality, especially consciousness. Yes, no, on, off, black, white, dead, alive. Well, what these practices do is they replace the Western light switch model of mind with a Eastern dimmer. And so therefore, it's not just on, off. No, it's just basically transitioning from gross waking consciousness to subtle dreaming consciousness to extremely subtle sleeping consciousness. And so therefore using this analogy, you are able to maintain a few photons of awareness as you transition from the waking state to the dream state to the deep dreamless state. And therefore a kind of 24 seven type of awareness takes place, which all the wisdom traditions say is actually one of the hallmarks of ultimate lucidity, i.e. the awakened mind, the enlightened mind is a mind that is actually awake, lucid under all conditions. It never turns off. And so this then really starts getting into some very deep topics that talk about really challenging the supremacy of the physicalist materialistic worldview. And again, I'll pause here for a second because there's so many places we can go with this, but this is why I get so jazzed about this stuff because it's not just with a really deep bow of appreciation for lucid dreaming. It's not just a nighttime video game which on an entry level, yeah, that's kind of cool. That's why it's sexy and it sells, you know, fulfill your wildest fantasies in the sanctuary of your nocturnal mind, right? That stuff sells. Ah, uh, you know, that gets a little boring after a while, at least for me. The really awesome thing about these practices is they are a marvelous nighttime opportunity every single night to explore the nature of mind and reality and therefore to wake up in the ultimate sense. That's ultimate lucidity. That's where I get super excited. And then it bleeds into these so-called philosophical dimensions, which really 
I argue it's the only philosophy because you haven't experienced it yet. I mean, these are just, these are direct byproducts of our experience. So thank you so much for bringing up this aspect of it. I think it's super important. Yeah, and, I, and, and John, I realize I'm doing a lot of the, lot of the talking here and I'll, I'll shut up in a moment, but I just want to summarize what Andrew said and, and even, even expand it. Cause you said you pointed to something very important that our Western worldview is based on a single state of consciousness. And the way the what the anthropologist way the anthropologists describe it is they say that Western culture is a monophasic culture, as opposed to most cultures in the world, which have so-called polyphasic cultures, which draw from multiple states of consciousness. And I would add to that, I think it's time to extend our map still further and point to the fact that. The West has been a single stage exactly. worldview, and that these contemplative traditions are actually multi-stage worldviews. That is, not only can do they point to multiple states of consciousness, they point to multiple stages of development. Exactly. And to me, probably the most exciting discovery of Western psychology in the last 50 years has been the recognition that psychological growth doesn't have to stop when the body stops growing. Right. We can continue to grow and mature and open and develop new ways of understanding and seeing and, and, and thinking and, and just holding the world in far richer ways. So putting those two things together, the implications of the lucid dreaming and sleep yoga you've pointed to, the polyphasic cultures, and adding uh, adding a differentiation between single stage and multi stage cultures, suddenly we have got a vastly larger view of reality and understanding and of ourselves. It's it's colossally important. And, and let me just again, I just have to please do a few things. So much here. Yeah, as you know, I mean, the, the studies have shown that of the what do they say, three thousand world cultures outside of Eurocentric cultures. They put a numbers on it. Ninety percent of the world's cultures are polyphasic. They they actually pay homage to the mind as it manifests in these different dimensions. It's really the kind of the hubris, the dare we say, the arrogance of the wake centric approach that that doesn't go there. And there's a I have to share this this wonderful story from Mullah Nasruddin, the great Sufi jokester. Right, this is beautiful. You, I'm sure you know this, Roger. Where this is a great one. We'll bring it up to contemporary terms, but the, the story is the following, is that there's a Mullah Nasruddin, the trick, the jokester, trickster, is out underneath a streetlight in the middle of the night, looking, 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 looking. And, and a neighbor comes by and, and sees, sees Mullah and says, Mullah, what are you doing? He goes, ah, I lost my keys. So he goes, oh, let me help. So they're out there looking, looking, looking. And, and after X amount of time, the neighbor says, hey, man, there's no way they're not out here. Where exactly did you lose these things? And uh, Nazarene says, oh, I, I lost them back in my house. And the neighbor goes, well, why the hell are we looking out here? And he goes, because the light's on. It's easier out here, right? We look where the looking is easy, where the key is actually lost where? In the house back home. And so the other thing here that's, again, very important, I love your interjections, Roger, is that largely due to the great contribution of Chardin, right? He said something, paraphrasing his beautiful work, evolution hasn't stopped. It's only moved indoors. Oh, that's exquisite. I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> it's just like it's only moved indoors. Well, here's where it gets better. Where do we move when it gets dark? We're playing outside. Oh, Billy, Billy, it's getting dark. Come on inside. You come inside. 
you're getting dark, you, you know, you're you step indoors. What happens when you lie down? You're stepping indoors even further. And so really what happens is if we don't pay homage to the natural circadian rhythms and what nature is inviting us, and we violate the curfew of the night, which is what we do with artificial light and all these weapons of mass distraction, we're violating the natural curfew of the night, which invites this interiority. And so what we do, if we, if we resonate with what nature is teaching us, we don't violate that curfew. We use that curfew to in fact step indoors, which is exactly where evolution is taking place. Guess what happens? We get a response like Matthew Walker, that this type of practice can represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. And here's one more little scientific footing because I know some of your audience is, is more academic and scientific. This one really hit me. The type of the brain, the, the more recent evolutionary advances in literal neuroanatomical evolution, like literally, are, are the frontal aspects of the brain. And I love the double entendre, literally, the frontal aspects of the brain are leading the frontal aspects of, of brain evolution. This is the type of the part of the brain, if you could somehow take your eyes and like right now and roll them straight up, you would be looking at the frontal and prefrontal cortex, right? This is exactly why when you look at an ape, their, their foreheads slope back because they don't have these frontal aspects of the evolutionary advance of the brain. Well, guess what? Guess what aspects of the brain come back online in metacognition, this is another way to talk about lucid dreaming. It's a type of metacognitive dreaming. The aspects of the brain that come back online when you're lucid are the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the orbitofrontal cortex, and the pecunius. Exactly those aspects of the brain that literally lead the frontal edge of brain evolution. Now, how interesting is that? And so when you're actually in the lucid dream state, those are the aspects of the brain that fire and come back online. So this is another intimation that evolution hasn't stopped. It's only moved indoors. Exactly what we're invited to do, we don't violate the curfew of the night every night when we go to sleep. So this, I don't know, this gets me pretty excited. <laughs> John, <laughs> did you want to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Fascinating. Dreams have been considered sacred or where the gods speak, it seems forever. And you have examples in the Old Testament where dreams spoke to the patriarchs and Joseph interpreted uh, the Pharaoh's dream. And he became a big, you know, big part of because of his wisdom and being able to see that. And I have also worked with dreams and I had dreams when I was a kid, which were repetitive and very powerful. And I would bring them out of the dream state and kind of struggle with them and they would reveal themselves to me over a lifetime. So I guess it's two questions. Who is the author of these dreams? Who is creating this world? And it seems like there's some kind of inner Shakespeare that speaks in very powerful symbolic terms that when you bring it out and you struggle with it and it reveals itself, exhibits great energy, real, real force and power comes out and, and clarity and light is shed on the other world, from the inner world. Beautiful, John, beautiful. Oh my gosh, this begs uh, some really interesting points. One is, just like in the overview of the five nocturnal meditations, there's a spectrum of practices related to every aspect of human experience. And that's really what's beautiful about this approach is there's a skillful mean upaya meditation 
tradition practice associated with every bandwidth, in this case of the nocturnal mind. Well, in that same sort of spirit, what you're pointing to here, John, is that dreams in and of themselves manifest along a spectrum from literally just kind of meaningless neurological noise, nothing really to be done. That, by the way, that can be used for the purposes of dream yoga. But in terms of what you're talking about, more the kind of dream interpretation thing, dream interpretation, I, I practice this with tremendous constancy. I have fantastic allegiance to the interpretive nature of dreams. But just as a sidebar, that's not dream yoga. That's different. It's completely valid. And this is why I like integral approaches to the, the dreaming mind. But it's actually not dream yoga. But with that said, we can have these incredible types of dreams, which beg the question, like, who is the dreamer who is having them? It depends, John, on the type of dream that you're having. So if you're having, well, let's go all the way to the top, what they call big dreams, theophantic dreams, clear light dreams. And I, I have to say, like you, I have had dreams like this. I, we're talking 40 years ago that are still illuminating and informing my life. Dreams that are, that are so powerful, so transformative, they're so real, that they really illuminate, shed light on, on my entire life. These are the dreams that can transcend the limitations of our self-sense, that not all dreams are solipsistic. In other words, not all dreams come from within the cranium, which of course is what the, the West would radically, not radically, just unequivocally say. Dreams are solipsistic. The ultimate selfism, all your dreams just arise within the context of your own brain mind. Again, that's just kind of myopia, nearsightedness of the Western way. A lot of them do. A lot of them are just your stuff processed from daytime experiences. And there's a lot to say here in terms of the different stages of sleep and, and how dreams arising in different stages are related to different processes of the previous day kind of thing. But when you start talking about these bigger type dreams, these take place because of the porosity and the translucency of the mind and heart that takes place when ego structure actually falls apart in, in the dream sleep space. And this becomes then a profound avenue for communication outside of the context of our own storylines, where we, in fact, can have messages, we can work with overt forms of dream incubation. And just parenthetically, I need to say here, the Greeks were aware of this. This is what the healing temples of Asclepius were all about, the, the great Greek god of healing. Supplicants would come into the temple. They do very sophisticated forms of dream purification, um, incubation, fasting, meditation, and the like, all in the effort to receive a dream from the divine physician, Asclepius. And then if they could interpret them, the, the dream on their own, fantastic. Otherwise, they were temple dream interpreters that would be there to interpret the dream, delivering healing messages. And so again, in, in the 90% of cultures that pay homage to these bandwidths of reality that are not exclusively within the province of, of the egoic self-structure, then when in fact we fall asleep, and this is where you can conjoin dream interpretation with dream yoga through dream incubation practices. I do this all the time. The Egyptians also did this. Then you can actually, you don't have to wait for a serendipitous dream to deliver a message. You can supplicate. You can ask for guidance. You can ask for help. I do this all the time. And I can tell because I've been doing this for decades, whether that dream is coming from me, but they're absolutely positively. And I, my dream journal is full of these accounts where I have experiences is like, this definitely did not come from me, right? This came from who knows where. 
And I love this kind of permeability porosity because then it makes me more and more available to these agencies, these wisdom forces that really can, can be profound guides and influencers on, on my waking arena. And dream yoga, of course, can vastly augment this type of thing because what it does is it just, again, opening the aperture of our hearts and minds just makes us more available to these extraordinary opportunities where we can learn from all these different types of agencies. So love the interjection. Thanks for asking that. And, and can you actually, when you're in dream yoga or in a lucid state, and you intuitively know this is this is not just stuff of my mind, you know, processing, but this is something from beyond or something numinous. Can you actually work with it in, in the lucid dream yoga state? Yes, great question. Absolutely. And it again, this is where the nine stages, that's my mapping of dream yoga actually come into play. And so usually what I do with these is I engage in what's called pellucidity or the witnessing lucid dream. And by this, what I mean is I allow, I realize, wait a second, this is pretty cool. There's something is really exciting happening here. I'm aware of that. I'm lucid. It's like being in a movie theater. I am completely aware of what's happening, but I'm not actually going to engage it in some of the more transformative exercise ways that I would do with the other stages of dream yoga in this case, I do a witnessing type of lucidity. In other words, it's like what it sounds. I simply sit back with full awareness, as, as aware as I am of talking to you guys right now, and I simply watch this playing out in, with this sense of complete appreciation, delight, and wonder. And that helps me maintain it in my database. Um, that helps me remember it. I'm not actually overtly engaging it, but however, with one, I wouldn't say one exception, Sometimes what I will do, and I can give you very specific examples where I'll be having a dream. Well, in fact, let me just give you one. I'll be having a dream. Um, one particular experience comes to mind when I was in my three-year retreat, and I was really struggling with a, quite a complex, sophisticated meditation practice. And our Drupan, our meditation master, retreat master, was gone. And so we were left to our own devices, which sometimes can get a little bit interesting when you're working with your mind, you know, 24 hours a day so intently. And so I was really struggling with this particular practice and I was incubating, I need some help. I need some guidance. And so that night I had a very powerful lucid dream with His Holiness Karmapa. He's, he's a, a, one of the really enlightened beings in one of the traditions, the Kagyu tradition that I follow of Tibetan Buddhism. And so just like I'm talking to you and Roger, as clear as I am talking to you, I, I, I'm lucid. I wake up. I'm at the feet of His Holiness Karmapa. And I, I, I ask him point blank, how, how do I work with this, this, this? And just like I'm talking to you, His Holiness then gives me these answers. And open question for me is, in fact, this Karmapa figure, is it in fact the Karmapa somehow infiltrating my own mind space, I have room for that in my worldview? Or is it in fact the karmapa within me? Is it in fact the awakened nature within my own matrix of being that is somehow expressing itself as a karmapa that's sharing it? On one level, John, it, uh, it doesn't matter. It, right. The message is what's important, not the messenger. But let me just say one other thing here and then I'll pause. The other thing that you can do here, and I did this serendipitously in my three-year retreat and in other instances, 
where we are having is a group, was a group retreat. We're having some real issues with the interpersonal dynamics and stuff, which is really kind of by design. And I, I ended up having a kind of surrogate dream. I, I, I didn't incubate it, but it happened. I, I became a bit of a surrogate dreamer where I started having dreams that they, these weren't now guidance just for me. These were dreams almost like a shaman. These were dreams that were meant for the group. And because the group was open and receptive, I very cautiously said, hey, guys, you know, if it's okay, I kind of had this dream last night. You want to hear it? And they all said, yes, yes, yes. And so I shared the dream. And of course, it's helpful to the entire group. And so I'll pause for a second. But this stuff is, again, it's another reason why it might be worth exploring these types of things, because it just, like Roger was saying, it opens you to vast dimensions of mind and reality that were previously closed down by the myopia, the, the wake centricity, the egoic levels of development that basically shut us off to these incredible dimensions of opportunity. And so, yeah, I love where we're taking this. Good stuff. Wow, what a journey. Get ready for the second part of this three-part conversation with Andrew Holacek, myself, and Dr. Roger Walsh. Stay tuned. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up, as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.